Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Ian Wallace tells us about the Farnham Workhouse. We learn of the horrors of being a resident there. We hear of the report that identified the unsuitability of the building and the dreadful manner in which the residents were kept. This report was debated in Parliament. We hear of the many letters written to the Times from people who both agreed and disagreed with the suggested actions from the report. We hear of the influence of Florence Nightingale and also how the health services of Farnham have evolved over the last 160 years. I think Farnham Castle Street says it all. What a charming town Farnham was and is, the period that I want to talk about, when a terrible indictment came upon Farnham, which I hope you will see led to better things. And this was really all to do with the setting up of a Farnham workhouse and the inspection of the workhouse by a team of, of two doctors from the Royal College of Physicians and their report. So we start off now with the report. This led to a huge amount of interest in the Times, for example. On the 22nd of October, 1867, there appeared an article which began, we bespeak the attention of our readers to the description of a country workhouse in the county of Surrey, Farnham, published in the Lancet, which went on to describe the appalling conditions and harsh regime at the workhouse in East Street, Farnham. I mean, this prosperous town with this beautiful castle and bishops living in it and hops and brewing. How could this possibly be? What was this all about? Mind you, there were other workhouses in other places, notably in London and Andover and Bristol, which came out even worse than Farnham. So don't think that Farnham was the only one. But this was really a time of great social concern. We have to put ourselves back now to the 1860s, when people were really concerned about the conditions of the poor and the working class, for perhaps for the first time ever. So going back in time a little, we have to look and see what was the provision for the poor in England before the 19th century? Well, let's start, of course, with the monasteries. Before the dissolution of the monasteries in 1536, the local poor and vagabonds became a bit of a problem. Because before that, if you were a traveller or a poor person, you could go and knock on the door of Waverley Abbey and you might be given a bit of bread, you might be given even a bit of vegetable. And you might even be given, if you were lucky, a bed for the night. 
But of course, all that came to an end. Now, the church gave some relief to local poor, and Farnham in particular, the St. Andrew's Church, there are many records of people who gave money for the poor. So it wasn't all bad after the dissolution of the monasteries. Then came the Vagabonds Act in 1572, which introduces the idea of a poor rate for relieving poor, aged, indigent, frail persons. And let's take an example of this, the Andrew Windsor almshouses in Castle Street, which are still there to this day, for the relief of eight poor, honest, and impotent persons. Now, we don't necessarily mean the word impotent in that sense, but we're talking about those who are powerless. They still grace the upper part of Castle Street, and they're very charming. The governors do make a distinction though, between the deserving poor and what you might call the undeserving. And in 1662, the Poor Relief Settlement Act, which allowed parishes to remove newcomers who were deemed likely to become a charge on the parish, vagrants and uh, gypsies, and between Alton, Guildford, and Farnham, there was a huge amount of people being shoved from pillar to post because they suddenly turned up in Farnham, and Farnham said, oh, you're not belonging to us. Go back to Guildford, and they were shoved off to Guildford, or they came the other way saying, oh, no, you came from Alton. Go back to Alton. People were, as I say, moved from pillar to post all the time. Two JPs had to be involved, and there was often quite a battle between the different parishes. Now, a married woman and the children, they were fine, but what about an unmarried mother and her children? They were really the big problem. In London, Captain Thomas Coram produced the London Foundling Hospital in 1741 with the help of people like Hogarth and Handel and many other good folk in Farnham, apart from the Andrew Windsor almshouses, there was a small workhouse in Middle Church Lane, opposite St. Andrew's Church. Now, that actually remained a common lodging house for many, many years, and for anybody laboring coming into the district and hadn't anywhere to go, they would be put up in the common lodging house. There is a story actually that goes that one time at Easter, the people in the common lodging house were supposed to be given loaves of bread by the, the rector of farm. And apparently the particular rector was a bit mean and all the people from the common lodging house descended on the old vicarage and demanded their loaves. They had a right, apparently, to a loaf at Easter. Now, moving on a bit, we come to the 1834 Poor Law Commission, which was set up by Parliament to establish houses for the poor and infirm who couldn't support themselves. A board of guardians was set up and a master in charge for each institution with local worthies being chosen, elected by the ratepayers. And some of the names I came across were very interesting. Mr. Hollist, Mr. Stroud, Mr. Lambert, Captain Mangles, Mr. Wilmer, and many other people whose names are still 
around, like Gorma House, for example. And they were the board of governors. A master was appointed, and Farnham felt it was doing the right thing. And then later was added a nurse and a visiting doctor. And the visiting doctor was a Dr. Powell. So we move on now to the workhouse. This was the new Farnham workhouse. However, it was an old building along the East Street and Hale Road, and it was quite a grand building. But at the time, it was beginning to fall down, and so it had to be sort of improved a bit. It had nice grounds, then it was converted and became the new Farnham Union Workhouse. Part of it was still in existence when I first came to Farnham in the 1960s. Then it was called St Andrew's Home for the Elderly. The master was appointed, which was a Mr Sergeant, good name, and Farnham felt it was definitely doing the right thing. You could content yourself by thinking, well, British society was improving, was much more caring, generous and moral in the days of social reform. However, after a few years, some cracks began to appear. Not every town or district had a well-run workhouse, an infirmary. Now, what did Farnham have in the way of infirmaries? In other words, places for the sick. Well, the only thing I can really find is that there was what was called a pest house in Hoghatch Lane in uh, Upper Hale. I don't think it's still there. When you say a pest house, you have to say, well, what did we mean? We're talking about people who had typhoid, enteric fever, leprosy. Mind you, leprosy in those days was quite common, but a lot of things were called leprosy, which rarely went. For example, skin diseases like psoriasis were often thought to be leprosy. It was a very bad thing when you, you were sent to the pest house. That was more or less your last resting place. And there was another one called the Lazar House in Burnt Hill Road. These were the, what you might call the infirmaries for people who had various diseases that nobody wanted to mention. Now, you could content yourself with thinking that Farnham and other places were really getting going and looking after their population properly. Amongst people who were movers and shakers in the time we're talking about was Louisa Twining. Those of you who know all about tea, Louisa Twining was the heiress of the Twining tea importers. She was really quite a mover and a shaker, you might say. She was a contemporary, almost exact contemporary of Florence Nightingale, very vigorous social reformer and religious radical. In the 1850s, she and others set up a commission to inquire into the administration and the running of district union workhouses. She was a frequent visitor to one in the Strand in London and St Giles. She became quite a friend of Charles Dickens. Now, as you know, Charles Dickens himself had been in a workhouse in the Strand when he was a youngster, and it left a lasting impression on him. You think of Dickens and the poor and the pickpockets and so forth. How else did you survive if you were in the workhouse? Not very easy at all. Dickens and Louisa Twining are good friends, as were a number of other people at the time. 
Louisa Twining visited the workhouse at St. Giles in 1856, she says, she went to see a poor man who had been a crossing sweeper, now decays in a basement, dark with a stone floor, an iron bed, filthy sheets, all grey with dirt. A poor blind young man with a spinal complaint attended by an old woman out of the kindness of her heart. No nursing at all. You just got dumped and you hoped for the best. If you were a young man, you might get a casual job. If you were a young woman, well, you better look out. And Dickens himself, with some friends, set up a home for unmarried mothers. Anyhow, let's go back to the Lancet report. The inquiry into the Farnham workhouse was undertaken because of this parliamentary commission set up in 1861 to look into the situation of workhouses all over the country. And the Farnham one was undertaken by two doctors, Dr. Joshua Stellard and Dr. Francis Anstey, FRCP. Their report starts. This report will, we fear, be a sensational one. We regret that it should be so, for the task of writing such a paper is unpleasant to a degree. And experience the pain of condemning the conduct of officials who are probably only half conscious of the mischief their negligence has caused. In deprecation of the annoyance our statement is likely to cause to the guardians of the Farnham Union, the exposure of simple facts is all that we intend and is desirable in the public interest. I do think their language is very well modulated. Is that the right word? How many of our politicians speak like that today? They go on to say, the farm and workhouse and infirmary is a perfect marvel of bad construction for any purpose. A series of two-storied buildings around a courtyard bare, gloomy, very dirty, with rows of narrow bedsteads covered with pallets of straw. The men are separated from the women across the courtyard. There can be space for upwards of 90 souls. They're all locked in at night. 15 patients occupy the roof space. The infirmary with patients with tuberculosis, heart complaints, syphilis, there is one nurse on duty, and she cannot be everywhere, and nobody at night to see broken-down old paupers. Crossing to the other side of the courtyard, we come to the nursery, where seven or eight ragged children sit on a bench, warming themselves by a small fire. There are no toys to play with, no books, no education, and newspapers are banned. Can you wonder why? Might give them information about what's happening. Now, the women's day room presented an even more pitiable spectacle. There were seven aged women, toothless and decrepit, making believe to dine on lumps of gristle in their gruel. The men's block was damp, gloomy, barren, even more cheerless than a prison. The men were expected to work in the garden or breaking stones or painting the walls or slopping out the cesspit for manure. There were vagrants who could come in at six o'clock to get de-loused and have a wash. Only the rich had a bath. In return, they were expected to do a day's work. 
There is a water closet in a dark and filthy place outside the lower story and next to the urinal. The drainage is into cesspools and stinks abound. It is said the state of drainage in Farnham is appalling. There has been an epidemic of typhoid and cholera. Is it also a possibility? Well, actually, we did have an epidemic of typhoid, and we had cases of cholera in Farnham too, in uh, Red Lion Lane. Then there are the tramp wards, which look like large rabbit hutches, where vagrants are shut in at night. The men are allowed no food at all, however weary and faint they may be. The women are allowed a piece of bread if they have children with them. The master, I think the master comes right out of Dickens in hard times. The master, for the past 14 years, the virtual government of this place has been the despotism of the master, James Sargent, a large man with an imposing presence, confident manner, and ability to talk down any mild remonstrance on the part of the inhabitants or the guardians or the poor. Only the new appointed Dr. William Powell opposed him and endeavoured to ameliorate the harsh conditions of this establishment and provide the inmates with washing facilities and towels, as well as food and medicines of good quality. But he had to fight for these benefits against much opposition. He also had to pay for any medicines out of his own salary of £50 a year. So that must have been pretty hard because if you had to pay for the medicines out of your own pocket and there was no provision for it, obviously there was only a limit to what you could afford to get for the inhabitants of the workhouse. Our most painful task is to say what we must say about the Father and Guardians. These gentlemen, farmers, squires, tradesmen, clergy of the Farnham establishment are not wanting in kind hearts and intelligence, and yet they chose to believe the master that all was perfectly in order in the workhouse. What can we say, Dr. Anstey continues, but that the existence of such places is a reproach to England, a scandal and a curse to a country that calls itself civilized and Christian. After the report came out, there were questions in Parliament about the dreadful state of affairs in the Farnham Workhouse. There was almost a, a sort of firestorm about the quality of workhouses generally. Why had the inspectors not noticed anything that was out of order, for example? Furious letters were written to the Times, and it gives you a pretty interesting impression about what people felt about the poor and needy. Samples like this, the wards are clean and everything is satisfactory. If such unfortunates will enter the workhouse, they must be branded with disgrace and made to eat the bread of affliction until they disappear, one writer says. Another letter says, it is no part of the guardian's duties to see that the poor who cannot get work shall be fed, that the indigent sick shall be well cared for. What are you thinking of? Quote, the system, when exposed, as at Farnham, looks very scandalous. But depend upon it, sir, most other workhouses are like it. Farnham is not unique. That was another letter. Another quotation. 
Surely it is the intentional feature of the present poor law to create a bugbear for to deter people throwing themselves upon the parish relief, such as these casuals. Another one, the Farnham Union Poorhouse has been made into a locked hospital by the government establishment of the new Aldershot camp. Ah, now, let's blame Aldershot. So here's the new army camp at Aldershot at that time. For the vices of the soldiers and the neglect by the government, we, quotation, are saddled with all that extra expense. Well, there were more than 150 cases of venereal disease and unwanted pregnancies for the infirmary to deal with. So the soldiers at the new Aldershot garrison came in for a lot of criticism for their loose morals and leading young maidens astray. When did I hear that before? Blame it on the soldiers. After a while, the outraged Farnham worthies were gradually prevailed upon to admit that something ought to be done. The superintendent was given the sack. It was discovered that he had fathered a child by one of the young maidens he was supposed to protect. Oh dear. A new superintendent was appointed and things improved somewhat. Young Dr. Powell, I'm sorry to say, disappeared altogether. I think the place got pretty too hot for him, really. I don't think he could stay in Farnham any longer. We think he turns up in Brighton, having a chance to breathe some sea air after all this fuss. What is to be done about all this? Following these parliamentary debates, there were a number of Acts of Parliament which established the model of separation of county workhouses from infirmaries, because clearly the idea of the common workhouse wasn't really looking after both groups very well. And in the middle of all this, Louisa Twining was very involved and Florence Nightingale was very involved in investigating how to produce proper infirmaries with good nursing and doctors attending. And this really arose out of Florence Nightingale's experience, and particularly at Scutari, where there was the regimental hospital. Conditions were absolutely appalling. And Florence Nightingale learned so much from what could be done and how it should be done. And setting up, as she did, the idea of a school of nursing was something which was really quite groundbreaking. She and Louisa Twining were very involved. Florence Nightingale had a, a considerable connection with Farnham on two fronts. She was very good friends with her cousins in Waverley Abbey House. She was quite a frequent visitor. And the other people that she used to visit were Reverend Richard Garth of Brightwell's House. That's where Florence Nightingale used to come down and stay on various occasions. She may have influenced things in Farnham to some extent, though I don't actually know that for certain. Certainly, she and Louisa Twining stirred up a great deal of, of campaigns to try and improve the idea of infirmaries and the idea of, of proper nursing.
1858, William Rathburn was a wealthy industrialist in Liverpool, and his wife fell ill with a chronic illness, and he employed a nurse called Mary Robinson to take care of her during her final illness. After his wife's death in 1859, he engaged a nurse called Mary to go to the poorest districts of the city to bring health care to the people who had no means to pay for it. He spent the rest of his life building up this service with assistance from Florence Nightingale and others. And you might say that district nursing on the Liverpool model sprang up and is still with us today. This man and others really almost single-handedly started something that was not really in existence before. So it may well be that her views on health and infirmaries and so forth may have been shared by some of the local Farnham folk the Anderson family, and Reverend Richard Garth of Brightwell's house, those who were on the board of the workhouse. And what happened after this report? Well, the workhouse and the infirmary staggered on, and gradually the idea of a separation of the workhouse from the infirmary became accepted in Farnham, because to try and put the both together was really from a medical point of view, the idea of cross-infection was pretty obvious. And also, the influx of hop pickers brought lots and lots of people from that place of smoke called London, where they brought their own diseases with them. Outbreaks of smallpox came from some of the hop pickers. So eventually, people thought we must do something about this. And for example, in the later 1860s, 70s, the Royal Surrey County Hospital was open, and eventually Farnham got a cottage hospital, the Trimmers Hospital. Now, who was Trimmer? George Trimmer was a hop farmer and a brewer, and he left a legacy of I believe, something like £50,000, which was a huge amount of money. But it was to endow this cottage hospital. And that was built in 1895. Trimmer's Hospital was rebuilt in 1938 with a public subscription. And the list of the subscribers is available in the library. Lots and lots of well-known Farnham people contributed to it. And on that site, we now have the Phyllis Tuckwell Hospice. Trimmer legacy goes on. So what happened to the Farnham Workhouse? Well, it carried on as a local authority workhouse and elderly care home. Part of it remained in the site of the Farnham Hospital. And when I first came to Farnham in the 1960s, the back of it, was called St. Andrew's Home for the Elderly. And I remember distinctly that when I visited there to see people who were poorly, it was really a bit like going into a sort of huge attic with beds jammed together, and there were still sort of water closets, as you might say, and spittoons, still looking pretty antiquated. And that was pulled down eventually, 
and the St. James's home was built. So there's been a, a huge change in local authority uh, housing for the elderly. So it all started to move bit by bit after this time. A quick word about Florence Nightingale, which we mentioned. As you may know, she was a great mover for training nurses properly. The Institute for Nurse Training at St. Thomas's Hospital, which was built in 1860, was named after Florence. It's called the Nightingale School of Nursing, and she set some pretty high standards. Now, moving on a bit, the Farnham Infirmary, which then became the Farnham County Hospital. It was built just at the back of the workhouse in the 1900s, and it provided full facilities with operating theatres, maternity unit, and a children's ward. There was a determined view that infectious diseases should be kept out of the infirmaries. Not surprising, as around the turn of the century, Farnham was pretty dire outbreaks of dysentery and cholera and typhoid. And as I was saying earlier, the inhabitants of Red Lion Lane and Abbey Street really had a particularly bad time. There were constant outbreaks of what was called in those days enteric fever. Now, Dr. Sweeting, who I think was named the first medical officer of health for Farnham, proposed a public water supply to Farnham, not that water should come out of wells, because wells became polluted. The only decent water supply in Farnham was that which came down from the top of Farnham Park, from a spring there, which is in what's called Spring Lane. And that was pure water that came down through the park, through the chalk, and if you were lucky enough to live in West Street, Castle Street, top of Downing Street, the west side of East Street, you could have permission to go to the cistern at the bottom of Castle Street with your bucket. And that was pure water, no infections at all. But unfortunately, all the other wells down Downing Street, Abbey Street, Red Lion Lane, all those places, I'm afraid the wells were constantly being polluted. So this was a serious matter. Now, Dr. Sweeting proposed a public water supply to Farnham. And the guidance of Sir Charles Tanner, who lived in Tilford and used to ride into Farnham on his grey mare and used to come and sort things out in Farnham Hospital or the infirmary, as it was in those days. So there were things really that were working much better. Having a, a Farnham public health officer was one of those things. Then there was a question of what to do about people with infectious diseases. We didn't really want to have infectious diseases in the main infirmary because that would cause trouble. So there was the pest house in Hog Hatch Lane. That was superseded. And the Lazar House in Burnt Hill Road was also superseded. And there was a great move to have a fever hospital, which was built in Green Lane in Farnham, is now closed and there's a housing estate on that site. 
And they looked after cases of whooping cough, dysentery, typhoid, cholera, and we had cases of smallpox there. I certainly remember a case of smallpox coming from some of the British Army who had contracted smallpox, I think, in somewhere like Iraq. And that caused quite a furore at the time. But fortunately, most people had been vaccinated against smallpox. The Farnham County Hospital has been knocked down now. It was built in the 1900s. And as I remember it, it was pretty good for its time. Tuberculosis was extremely common at the time. Crooksbury Sanatorium was built in 1900, and the superintendent was a Dr. Frederick Walters, who believed passionately in the concept of fresh air. Good food would be the cure for consumption, consumption being the title for tuberculosis. And he wrote books on the subject, for example, the open air treatment of pulmonary tuberculosis. I regret to say that Dr. Walters was actually wrong, but it was a brave attempt. The idea of good food, fresh air, and these horrible germs would go away. Alas, they did not. It wasn't really until we had the modern treatment of tuberculosis with streptomycin, which has now been superseded by four different drugs that you have to take now if you've got TB. Anyhow, streptomycin originally was the first to do anything about tuberculosis. So this sanatorium sadly came to an end. Uh, there was a massive forest fire on Crooksbury Hill and it was destroyed. No doubt the fresh air and good food did something, but didn't cure anybody. Now we have a new farm hospital. The old one was pulled down. This was opened by the Countess of Wessex in 2004 and is now, of course, a satellite of Frimley Park Hospital. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.